Um, a lot of you, and I understand this, you, you don't like the uh, lack of structure uh, of these days. Um, and then you couple that with a sense of pressure that there's a, there's a whole lot that you could be doing and you should be doing. Um, and for me, just speaking from personal experience as, as a, a world champion procrastinator, uh, I, I, you know, for many years I thought that was my spiritual gift. Um, um, did you show that first slide? Yeah, well, yeah that's <laughs> so sad. Um, but uh, these can be days when you're you're tempted <laughs> to fear, uh, to feel a, a lot of anxiety, uh, perhaps a sense of um, inadequacy. We can be worried, really, because I, Princeton, a lot of us derive a lot of our sense of identity and well-being from our academic performance, and so we may be worried about our ability and our sense of self in these moments. And, uh, and for some of you, uh, this was a familiar feeling to me, there can, be, um, uh, there can be a great sense at this time of regret, uh, sort of the famous, if only I had uh, started reading this book um, you know, six weeks ago, uh, and, and that can lead to some you know, real self-criticism. <laughs> You know, so we know that feeling. Uh, it's, it's not too pleasant. And, and sometimes the, that pressure leaves us uh, feeling very isolated and alone. And some of you may respond to that pressure by uh, going into your cave. Uh, Debbie will say that of me, that when I'm under pressure, I go into my cave and I isolate myself from others. And, and um, also, sometimes that pressure can be, for some of us more than others, uh, a great source of temptation to just escape, uh, to waste time, to uh, go after finding uh, small comfort in things that aren't really very constructive or beneficial. And so uh, over the next three weeks, we want to encourage one another uh, to go in a different direction. And uh, that is that instead of giving way to anxiety and fear or seeking our comfort in these uh, uh, unfruitful or destructive ways. We want to encourage one another over these next weeks to draw near to God, uh, specifically to encourage one another to pray and to cast our cares upon Him. In Luke's Gospel, he uh, records how the disciples came to Jesus and uh, they asked Him, maybe you better turn that one off. Huh? Yeah, they, they asked Him, Lord, teach us to pray. And uh, Jesus didn't say, oh, you idiots, you don't know how to do that. Um, he's, he, of course, he responded. He taught them how to pray. And the Gospels are actually full of passages where Jesus is instructing us in prayer, uh, both through parables and stories and also through direct teaching. Uh, Jesus wants us to pray, and he teaches us how to pray. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, so familiar to many of you if you've grown up in the church, but we want to think about this prayer and what Jesus is saying to us uh, about prayer. So uh, let's, let's read that text. And uh, this is out of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 6. So Jesus uh, has been... Uh, 
actually giving them some negative examples with regard to prayer. And, and then he says to them, so this is how you ought to pray. Pray this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, if you grew up reciting the Lord's Prayer, I learned it in uh, school at a, at a very young age. Um, you may have learned it with uh, a, a closing line that, that is not here. Uh, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You guys recognize that if you know the prayer. And that line it actually does appear in the majority of extant Greek manuscripts, uh, but uh, it is absent from some of the earliest and best attested manuscripts. And so most uh, New Testament scholars think that it was probably not part of the original uh, and so what we find is that most of our modern Bibles uh, put it in a footnote uh, or a side note rather than directly in the text. And, and the theory uh, with, with regard to that line is that the early Christians, uh, following Jesus' instruction, early Christians uh, used this prayer not only privately but in, in gathered times of, of worship and uh, added an ending to it and that that ending eventually crept into the manuscripts itself. So as we think about this prayer, uh, it's often called the Lord's Prayer, although some, uh, some will want to say, well, it's, it, it, we actually should call it the Disciples' Prayer. Um, it may seem a little nitpicky, but um, Jesus is telling his disciples, telling us how to pray. Um, and it is certainly good, I think, appropriate. It can be really personally beneficial to learn this prayer, to commit it to memory, um, and to, to use it in private and, and gathered worship. But I think the best way to understand this prayer, uh, and, and I'm certainly not alone in this, is, is that what Jesus is giving his disciples, giving us here, is a pattern for He's not prescribing this as, when you pray, you must say these words. Um, he's not giving this, in other words, to limit our praying in any way or constrain it, but to teach us how to pray. And so this model prayer has in it, we might say, it, has, it contains everything in it that we need to keep in mind uh, as we come before God in prayer. It tells us, in other words, what to remember what to keep in our minds, what to be thinking about as we draw near to God to pray. And so in the, in the next three weeks, we're going to look at this uh, in three different sections. And tonight, we're just going to look at uh, verses 9 and 10. And then next week, uh, we're going to focus on uh, verse 11. And um, one reason we're only going to do one verse next week is because when we talk about verse 11, we're also going to spend some time in reference to that, talking about fasting, and some of you have questions about fasting. Should Christians, I know I've heard of fasting, or I've seen it in the Bible, is that something we're supposed to do? So we'll talk about that some next week. And then the third uh, week, we'll look at verses uh, 12 and, and 13. 
But tonight, just verses 9 and 10 for a few minutes. And uh, the, the whole prayer, you'll see, contains, sometimes people debate whether it's 6 or 7, but it, it uh, begins with an address, Our Father in Heaven, and then it has uh, six requests or petitions. And tonight, in verses 9 and 10, we're going to look at the first three of those. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done. So let's think about these for a few minutes. I think that when we come before God in prayer, uh, one of the most important things that we can do, even before we, whether we're praying silently or not, so I'm, whether I'm speaking metaphorically or not, even before we open our mouths, is to, as it were, pause to realize for a minute, to, to uh, remember who it is that we are speaking with. And so there, there might be a real sense, Jesus doesn't say this here, but there might be a real sense, perhaps, in which the very best thing that we can do when we begin a time of prayer is to say nothing. There's, there's a moment in, in the book of Job when uh, Job, you know, God finally begins to speak, uh, and, and Job's response is, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand, he says, over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. And, and there's, there's a sense there in the book of Job that, that this, this man has come to uh, this profound realization in that moment that there is a God, and Job is not God. And, uh, and he says, I put my hand over my mouth. And, and so what I'm saying is that when we begin by remembering what we are actually doing when we pray, that, that we are uh, coming before the Almighty God, that, that like Job, we put our hands over our mouths, that, wait, this is not an ordinary thing. I mean, in a sense, I would hope it, it, it is ordinary in terms of our practice, but this is an extraordinary thing thing that, that I am doing, that I am speaking to and with the living God. But the prayer then begins with what? To acknowledge Him. Uh, the, the opening words, our Father in heaven. To acknowledge God, and, and so properly that's where, where prayer always ought to begin, with acknowledging God, who is He? Who am I speaking to? And uh, we, we use words like worship, we use words like adoration, um, when, when we are acknowledging God, his person, in terms of who he is. And this prayer points us to uh, two answers to, to who am I talking to when I pray. First of all, I'm addressing one whom Jesus teaches me to address as Father. Pray in this way, our Father. And that's a very personal title, right? And, and then this Father is one, he says, who is in heaven. And so I want to think about these two things for a moment. What, what is God like? Who is he? Uh, let's talk about the in heaven first. First, God is in heaven. And so when I come to pray, I am, I'm not talking to myself. I admit, sometimes in my doubt, when I'm praying, I think, am I just talking to myself? Is there anybody else here? 
And I wouldn't be honest if I didn't say that, but I, but I am not addressing myself. This is not, for example, the same as, as what today is often referred to as mindfulness. Listening to my, my body. Uh, no, when I come to pray, I'm saying there is someone there. There is a God. I am not God. The, the book of Hebrews, for example, says that the one who comes to God must believe, what? That he is. That he is there. And that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. You know, and in, in, in our time, I think many of us, honestly, uh, don't always believe that, or we struggle to believe that. But this is something profound. What we're saying is that when we pray, we are calling upon one who is outside of ourselves and who is outside of our what we could call our horizontal reality. And so this is what theologians uh, have in mind when they talk about God, you know, with a big word, that he is transcendent. He's not the same as me. He's not the same as the universe, which is pantheism. He is the maker of heaven and earth. And so prayer is bringing me into direct engagement, conversation with the transcendent, with the God who is outside of our space, the God who is really there, the God who is also personal. And, you know, we, we have such a tendency right now to live in, in a kind of um, flattened reality. Uh, there were times in history when uh, it, it would have been virtually impossible to find someone who did not believe in God. Uh, but, but now things have been so flattened that we often feel like we're living in a world where even Christians aren't sure we still believe in God. It's a kind of a secular, flattened reality, life without God. And, and many even uh, of us, day to day, are in danger of living within a kind of a functional agnosticism. And, and, and so prayer is profound because it is pushing back against that and, and it is, it is re-seeing reality and saying, no, the horizontal is not all there is. There is a God. When I pray, I'm saying, wait, I'm not alone in the universe. And, and so that, this is profound. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the great uh, British uh, uh, preachers, he said, prayer is beyond any question the highest activity of the human soul. That's a strong statement, but when we pray, we are consciously entering into the presence of the living God. And so prayer is, is profound, and in many ways it is the most basic indication of our true spiritual condition. Because, you know, we can, we can come to meetings, we can sing songs, we can... We can uh, maybe not intentionally deceiving one another, but we can cover ourselves with one another. But when we come into the presence of the living God to speak with him, everything is laid bare. Our true selves. He knows it all. And, you know, so the Jews who first listened to Jesus teach, they would have uh, readily affirmed their belief in, in this God who is transcendent, who is almighty, who is majestic, who is sovereign, who is, is holy, 
And what would have really amazed them, it, it perhaps doesn't amaze us as much as it should, is when Jesus tells us how to address this transcendent, almighty God, we are allowed, we are encouraged, we, we are privileged to call Almighty God, the one who is high and lifted up, who is exalted in majesty, Jesus tells us to address that God as our Father. And this is uh, remarkable. Because Father is the language of relationship, of family. And, and in an ideal world, which we do not inhabit, it is language that, that would bring comfort, that would bring security, that would bring a deep sense of being beloved, of being accepted. And perhaps, I'm sure in this room, uh, for, for some, perhaps for many of you, that may not be your association with the word Father. If, if you grew up in a, in a household with, with a father who was harsh or angry, who was distant or indifferent, who was demanding, critical, uh, physically or emotionally abusive, irresponsible, perhaps just absent. If you grew up in, in, uh, uh, in a home where your, your dad had abandoned you or the family, and, and if, you, if you grew up in that kind of background, perhaps even now you, you hear uh, this sense of father and you're not sure, well, my father didn't love me, my father didn't care for me. And, and so for some of us, it might not immediately bring a sense of comfort when Jesus uh, urges us to call God our Father. Uh, but I, but I want to at least suggest this, if, if you're in that place tonight, that even if your earthly father was, is uh, awful, I think we can all imagine, even, even by its absence, what a good and loving and caring father would be like if such a person existed. And what Jesus is telling us, what the scriptures are telling us, is he does exist. He does. God, the Almighty God, is that loving, that good, caring father, that trustworthy father. And Jesus says we can come to him as our Father. You know, if this is particularly hard for you, I, I'd be happy to talk with you further about it. I certainly have struggled with this at times in reference to my own dad. If you, if you want to read something, uh, there's a man by the name of David Paulison who has written, I think, a helpful article. Uh, it's called What If Your Father Didn't Love You? If, if that's of interest to you, you can uh, let me know and I can tell you how to, to get a hold of that. But when we pray, we come before God uh, deeply aware of what we're saying of two realities, that on the one hand, we might need to remind ourselves that the person we're talking to is not our buddy. Um, he is the living God. But on, on the other hand, we come with a sense of humility and of wonder that the, the living God invites us, that Jesus teaches us, that he is our father, to address him as our father. He knows everything about us, 
and he loves us. He desires our good. And so that's how the prayer begins, and that's how we ought always to come before God, is in that spirit. And then we find these three petitions, and uh, we're just going to talk about them quickly. But I think what's interesting to, to note is, is that the prayer begins with these three petitions, and if you think about it for a minute, before we begin to talk to God about what we want, or about our needs, perhaps, it might be a better way to put it, Jesus teaches us to begin by giving our hearts over to what, what are God's plans, what are God's purposes, what would be honoring and pleasing and glorifying to God. And you know, um, for me, it requires a certain amount of discipline and uh, some self-forgetfulness for me to come before God with my first focus not being upon myself uh, and what I want or what's troubling me right now or what I'm anxious about right now. Um, even for my first focus not to be upon praying for others, maybe my children, I'm anxious about my children. But that my first focus when I come before God is upon Him, who He is. It's upon His will. It's upon His, his honor. It's upon His plan and His purpose. And I think, though, that when we do that, we are, in a sense, putting things right with the world as we inhabit it. In other words, we're getting things in the right order and, and in the right perspective. And so the first uh, request that Jesus teaches us, uh, hallowed be your name. And you find that word hallowed in, or some version of it in maybe the message Somebody who reads the message, I'm sure it does it differently, but that's not a word we use very much. But, you know, it, it, uh, God, may your name be holy, is, is one way to put it. What, what in effect, we're asking uh, or, or saying here is, God, you are supremely worthy. You are a supremely worthy being. May all come to agree and affirm that. May your name be honored. May your name be held in reverence. And, you know, in, in the Semitic way of thinking, a person's name uh, was very much bound up in, in their identity. And so in Jewish thought, the name of God was revered, even to the extent that they would not uh, speak it, uh, just as the person of God was to be honored. So God, may your name be honored is, is a way of saying may your person, may you be honored. And when we pray sincerely, God, may you be, be honored, we, we need to see that one aspect of the answer to that prayer, it must be very personal for, for us. In other words, it's not just, God, may everybody else honor you. Don't worry about me right now. <laughs> no, it's it's, God, I want to honor you in all of my thoughts, in all of my words, in all of my behavior. And so in praying that, in a sense, we are also saying, God, my highest goal is, is that everything that I might do would bring glory to you because you are worthy of that. Hallowed be your name. And, and then secondly, we pray, your, your kingdom come. Now, God, uh, if, if, you, if you know the scriptures at all, you would say, well, doesn't God already reign over all things? Uh, what do we mean by the sovereignty of God? That's true, but 
I mean, look at our world. We, we do not see and we do not experience God's reign and his rule uh, of, of his kingdom over all things in, in the present. We don't see all things, Hebrews will say, subject to Jesus right now. And in fact, the world as we find it, it, it feels like it is uh, subject to futility, which it, which it is. And so when, when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we, we are praying for the full manifestation of who God is and of his reign over the creation, which means, among other things, the full restoration and renewal of all things that are fallen and ruined by sin. And, and early Christians uh, longed and prayed for the return of Jesus because they understood that that would be the event that would bring the fullness of God's kingdom uh, to fruition. And so the book of Revelation, the last book in the, in the New Testament, ends with this expression of longing, Lord, come quickly. Aramaic, Maranatha, come quickly. And so when we pray, Lord, your kingdom come, we, we are expressing that not only the, the world as we experience it, uh, we don't see the fullness of God's rule and reign, but that we're expressing that nothing could be better. Nothing could be more wonderful than for Jesus to return and for the fullness of God's reign to be realized in a new, in a transformed creation. Your kingdom come. And then thirdly, uh, the third petition, uh, or will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, and here again, we, we recognize that the, the world that we live in, we, we don't see God's will being done. What we see is uh, people doing harm to one another, uh, people hating one another. Uh, I mean, it's so distressing. I'm not sure even uh, this evening whether it's, it's going to happen tomorrow or not, but many of you know that uh, a, a white supremacist organization has planned to uh, lead uh, some kind of a rally or a protest here in Princeton tomorrow. And, you know, just, just one kind of a, of a glaring example of the fact that we find ourselves in, in, in a world where we don't see uh, love, we don't see justice, we don't see mercy, we don't see goodness, and, and we recognize that it is not only out there that we don't see it, but it's here in, in my own heart that, that I don't see it. All creation longs for it. And so when we pray, your will be done, we are praying that God would accomplish his good and his perfect will in our hearts and in all of creation. And, and here again, if we're going to pray for God's will to be done, how can, how can I pray, God, your will be done if I am not willing to do God's will? That just doesn't, doesn't make sense, does it? So insofar as God has revealed his will to me, am I willing to do it when, when I pray that? I mean, he's given us his, his word, and, and some of us perhaps ought to be in, in, embarrassed that, we, that at the end of the day, we don't even know what God's will is because we haven't read the book where he tells us what it is. And... And, and so this petition leads me to ask, am I committed to doing God's will? To, to obeying him, to loving my neighbor, 
And, you know, for me personally, and I think this is true for many of us, one of the most important things that happens when we, when we go to God in prayer is that prayer is a process, sometimes a painful process, of bringing my will into submission to God's will. In other words, I don't, I don't come to, to God saying, God, this is my will. This is what you need to do. This is what I want you to do. This is what you have to do. This is what I'm telling you to do. I, I come to God and I say, God, I didn't make myself. You made me. Um, you're the shepherd. I'm the sheep. You're the, you're the Lord. I'm the servant. I don't come to you to, to tell you to do my bidding, but to come to you to say, Thy will be done. I was talking to uh, one of you this week who said, you know, I thought I'd given something that was important, uh, an important matter. He said, I thought I'd given this over to God, and then, and then God didn't do what I wanted him to do when I gave it over to him. <laughs> He said, I realized, no, I hadn't really given it over to him at all. Jesus in the garden is, of course, a powerful, the garden of Gethsemane on the night before his crucifixion, when knowing where, where God was taking him, he says, Father, if it's possible, take this, take this from me, this cup that I'm about to drink, take this from me, but, but not my will but your will be done. And so, in, in these three petitions, you know, are we prepared in coming to God every time to, to say, God, I, I come because I want to honor you today. I come because I want to I live as a faithful uh, citizen of your kingdom today. I, I, I come because I want to do your will today. And so, all of these petitions that Jesus teaches us to say are profoundly God-centered, which, which means they push very hard against my me-centeredness, right? These are, these are all petitions that reorient me to being a person who is living in submission to the living God, who's living for God, and, and who's ordering my time and my days and everything that I do uh, in an awareness of the real presence of a living God. So these prayers lead me to engage, in other words, in the, in the mundane business of life, always aware that I am doing that in the presence of a transcendent God. So just to wrap this up, I mean, I guess uh, a first and obvious question Jesus tells us to address God as our Father. Do you, do you know God tonight as your Father? Jesus says, John says of Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 12, as many as received him, as received Jesus as Lord, as Savior, as many as received him, even to those who believed in his name, he, that is God, gave the privilege of becoming the children of God. And so we become children of God. God becomes our Father in heaven when we come to him through Jesus Christ, his only Son. 
Do you know God as your Father tonight? If not, if you want to talk about that, if you want to pray with someone about that, please ask one of your friends, ask one of us. Maybe some of you tonight, if you're honest, you just don't pray. You're, you're living in that, that horizontal realm. You know, you come to meetings, you go to Bible study, but you don't pray. And maybe that's because you aren't convinced that God is really there. And perhaps tonight would be a night for you to go back to your room and get on your knees and acknowledge the God who is there. Perhaps you don't pray because you don't really want to submit your will to God's will. And so you're comfortable thinking about God existing as your sort of cosmic uh, therapy boy, uh, your, your helper who does your bidding, but you're not comfortable thinking about God as one who you are going to say, Lord, your will be done in my life. Maybe some of you feel like you don't know how to pray. And there's a lot of resources for that. But, you know, at the end of the day, just talk to him. I mean, yes, I think it is harder to talk to God than it is to talk to the friends sitting across the table from you in the dining hall sometimes. Um, <laughs> but you can, you can talk to him. Don't get hung up. You know, you have friends who use this very pious-sounding, very spiritual language, and you think, wow, who taught them to talk that way? Uh, you don't need some special language. Just talk to him. And, and the final thing I would say is, you know, these, these petitions are not in the singular. Our Father, give us, forgive us, lead us, deliver us. They're not singular, but they're, they're plural. And certainly it's good. It's right for us to pray privately. And I would urge all of you, if you're not doing that, to begin to do that. To, Jesus will say, go into your closet and pray. The point of praying is not to make a big show of it. But we are also urged to pray with and for one another and with and for others. And, you know, there's a lot of ways for you can, to do that. You can, you can just invite someone to join with you in prayer. You can go to daily prayer. Um, you can pray in your small groups. But... Prayer is an important part for us to share together uh, as servants, as beloved children, as brothers and sisters in calling upon our loving Heavenly Father. So let's, let's, let's make January, wh wh wherever you are, let's think of January as a, as a time to maybe make a fresh start. But I'm not going to give way to anxiety and fear and isolation. Instead, I'm going to procrastination escapism and say, I'm going to try something different. I'm going to draw near to God and pray. Amen.